There's something about that song that just warms my heart, thinking of the idea that victory sometimes looks like loss. Think of the, those that were martyred and to lions hurled, those that in many ways paid the ultimate price for following after Christ. This morning is going to be kind of a continuation from last week. It's in a way, it's kind of a two-part series, and I know there's going to be some differences in ideas between them in a way that might seem almost more of a contrast than a, a bringing together or a complete whole. But sometimes I think that in, in the kingdom of heaven, that's the way things are, is that we, have, we kind of have two sides of the same coin. And we look at them from both sides, and we, we say, well, this isn't the same thing, and, and yet it actually is. They've, I think you probably all heard the story about the three blind men that went out to feel an elephant, and they were asked to describe it. And one of them had a hold of the tail, and one of them had this hand on the flank, and one of them had a hold of the trunk. And of course, they all described the elephant in completely different ways. And the kingdom of heaven, in some ways, is like that. We, each, we see individual parts of it that are our part, or we see things from a, a viewpoint that is our viewpoint. And it's easy to become confused, and I guess the message this morning is kind of my trying to make sense of it all. Last week's sermon was on imitating God, being imitators of God. And the message that I was trying to say is that we have something to look at as what we should be like. We have an ideal that is set before us. And this ideal should continue in many ways not as a set of rules, but instead as a, a mental understanding of who God is and what he is. And so that's kind of the contrast that I want to share this morning. I'd like to go ahead and we'll start with prayer and then we'll go ahead and jump into uh, Galatians chapter 5. Lord, I just ask that you would be here this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come down, that it would give us strength and give us courage, Lord, that we would understand what you would have to teach to us, that our hearts would be soft, that we would be willing to recognize those areas in which we have strayed from your ideal, in which we have sinned, and would be willing to confess those before you. And Lord, that we would take strength from our brothers and our sisters and in recognizing our weakness, and in some ways in exalting that weakness and and saying that this is not where we want to be, this is not where we want to be, but that this is something that desires to follow after you. Lord, in the midst of this, I pray that you would give us the ability to shine as lights, that you would give us a, a faith that is childlike in nature, a faith that is understanding and one that knows you in a, in a personal way, in a relationship that accepts the love that you have for us and yet also desires to take a step forward. I thank you once again for your goodness, and I thank you so much for each one that's here. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I wanted to start out by saying is that I just, I really appreciate each one that is here. I, I look out here, I see friends, I see family. And maybe not family in the strictest sense of the word as of the same genetic line, but of people that I care about. And I think about it in the same way as, as what Jesus called his, his disciples, his family. I feel that way about you all. I really appreciate each one that is here. I'd like to start in Galatians chapter 5. 
and starting in verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. I guess if I had to make this a title for this message, it would be this, Faith Working Through Love. And so many times, you know, as I talked last week about imitating Christ, I talked about the law that is around us. And this law is for our good. This law is something that we should live up to. This law is something that we should, we should follow after. But in, in recognizing that, then I have to come to this passage in Galatians. And I have to say, well, wait a minute. It's not the law that saves us. It's not the things that we do that actually make us part of the kingdom of God. It's not the, the physical following after this rigid set of rules. But instead, it's a desire to be more like God, to be an imitator of God. And this imitation of God means that we follow after him in the ways that he has loved, in the ways that he has, he has shown justice, in the ways that he has shown mercy to us when we confess and accept that his way is right and our way is not. And so in the midst of this, we find out that this idea of Faith working through love then becomes law. In some ways, this is scary to me because it means that, that we have to work out the law for ourselves. Now, I'm sure that there will be people that would say, well, wait a minute, that's almost heretical. The law is here in the Bible and we have to follow it. In some ways, but there's also a way that as Christ lives within us, this, that we take upon us a law that is created by faith. If we continue on, in verse 7 it says, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence you, confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the love is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. In this we find that love fulfills the law. Love becomes the law in itself. And if we seek the good that is for someone else, then that should be a situation in which we find ourselves willing to be flexible and allowing people to interpret this law based on their relationship with Christ. I had to think about this yesterday. Uh, Seth asked me if I'd be willing to drive the, the train that Dale has. It's quite an interesting little thing to drive. I really have not driven it much before. But I was thinking about it as I, as I drove this train. I thought about the, the time that Dale spent on it. And also, there's so many things I don't really understand about it. Like most of the time when I pull a trailer, the trailer follows the truck fairly closely. But that train is designed in such a way that it kind of follows wherever the, the thing that is pulling it is at. And so you're, you're, you're running along, and this, this train is, is kind of weaving around behind you. It's, it's, it's going to where you had been in the past. 
but then it is still being pulled toward where the, the engine is, or where the, in this case, the four-wheeler is. I thought about this as I, as I pulled it around, you know, we would load it up with kids, and the kids would all climb on there. And I'm, I'm kind of the leader in this train. It kind of felt like that follow the leader thing we used to do as kids, and where that was just a bunch of kids. But this, this is, all the little kids would get in there, and off we would go, driving around. And this thing would follow wherever I went. And I thought about this idea of what, what are the laws behind that? We could say, well, the, the law is, is that each one follows the one before it, or follows the one that was, yeah, follows the one that was before it. We could say that that was, that was something that was going to happen. But we can also say that we need to be following after something. And if we could picture God as the driver, or Christ as the, as the head of that, then we end up in a situation where we want to follow after him. We want to experience the things that he has experienced. We want to become what he is and have achieved where he is at. We will not each individually be able to do that because we don't have the power that he has. Each of the train cars, each of the little barrels that follows along behind isn't going to have its own engine. It, isn't, it doesn't each have the ability to move on its own or direct on its own. It has more of a way of following after that which is in ahead of it. And as I thought about this, I thought about how apt this should be in our life, is that we should be seeking to follow after that where we see power and we, where we see one who has loved us and who has created us. In the midst of this, he is saying that if love fulfills the law, then we should not judge others based upon some set of rules that we have unless it's of value. There was a, there's a man named G.K. Chesterton, and he had a an idea that he had put forward, kind of as a philosophy. But this philosophy said this, that if you were wanted to be a reformer and you were walking along a road and you came upon a fence, he said a reformer should not just walk up to the fence and knock it down if they didn't know what it, why it was there. He said because somebody built the fence. So if you cannot explain to me the purpose behind the fence, that does not mean that you have understood it. Instead, you should go away and you should come up with a reason why the fence is there. And then when you have a reason for the fence, then perhaps I will let you destroy it. Because if you have a reason behind the fence, then you understand why it was put there, and perhaps there isn't a reason for it anymore. But if you don't understand it, just tearing it down to tear it down, you might put yourself in a terrible situation. I, I thought about this in the past. We were growing up on a farm. Often we would be told that if you find a gate, if it is open, you need to leave it open. If it is closed, you need to leave it closed. And as a kid, this became a, a way of life on the farm. If you walked through a gate and it was open, you left it open. If you walked through a gate and it was closed, you made sure it was closed after you. Because if you, if you didn't leave it where it was, the way it was, it could be that you closed the gate and that actually prevented all the cows from getting to water. You could literally have hurt all the cows if, if you had closed the gate. But if you came upon a gate that was closed and you left it open, it could be that all the cows would be out and you'd be chasing them through the woods and through cornfields. And I have done that. It's no fun trying to find a bunch of cows and bringing them all together and putting them back where they belonged. And so as I, as I look at this, sometimes I think we, we desire to just throw out all of the law. We desire to throw out all the law. And that's not something that I am, that I am encouraging. But I do think that we need to be careful that we don't create traditions and make laws out of them. That we don't create some, some physical thing and say, well, this is a value, this is good. Instead, we should say, what is the purpose behind it? 
I think we've often done that with alcohol. I think that's one of the things that has happened, is that we've said, well, alcohol is just completely evil. And that's not what Scripture teaches. Instead, what we need to look at is what are the dangers of allowing alcohol into a family or into a home. I have personally seen how destructive alcohol can be. And I think that if, if we draw a line and say, well, it is better for us not to have to deal with the problems of alcohol, that might be a line that you can take. And I, it's one that I have taken. But that doesn't mean that it is wrong to have alcohol in the house. It doesn't mean that at all. And I think each of us need to be confident in where we are standing, and that is very clear in Scripture, that we need to understand where we are at and be willing to draw perhaps that fence for ourselves and then also be able to look at other people's lives that are abusing it and say, hey, wait a minute. I've got this fence in my life. This is why it's here, and it's becoming evident that you are, you're you tore down this fence to your own detriment, to your own harm. So be willing to say when something is right and when something is wrong. And we can see that by, in love, we can see the way that that is treating other people, the way that people are being treated because of that, and we can make a judgment call because of that. I'd like to continue on, verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. I love this. See, he, start, he stops on the previous verse by saying, you are not under the law. And then he immediately goes into the things that are obviously wrong. And this is, this is one of the things I think that happens is we start, we start trying to remove traditions and instead we end up trying to say that something that is wrong is right. And that is not in any way true. What is wrong is wrong and it always will be wrong. There is a, a solid, absolute truth and there are things that are absolutely wrong. And if they, we, they, we do these things, they are absolutely wrong. There's no way to make these things right. You can, you can try the end of your days, but you will never make these things right. And our society is trying to make these things right. And in the process, they are confusing people. There are so many people now that don't even know which way is up or which way is down regarding truth because they have become confused because they are saying these things that are wrong are right. And it is a problem in our society. But in this passage, Paul is saying these things are the things that are wrong. So we know that you are not under the law. But these things are wrong. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which, is our which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I can tell you from what Paul has said here, and following after what Paul has said, and knowing what God is like, that if you do these things, that you will not be in the kingdom of heaven. It's just the truth. And if we don't understand this, if we say, well, I can get by with this, or I can get by with that, it, all you are doing is deceiving yourself. You're not deceiving God. And I, this is why when last week when I talked about this idea of confession, why confession is so important. Because the truth is, we will do some of these things. I have done some of these things. Does that mean that I will not be in the kingdom of heaven? No, it means that I need to be willing to confess to others around me that these things have been in my life. And in the midst of that confession, I get victory. I get victory because at that moment I can say, look, 
this is what I have done, and I'm sorry for it. And as soon as we confess, as soon as we tell God, God, I know that this is not according to your will. As soon as we accept that, as soon as we tell others and we confess it to God, he is merciful. And I I think that sometimes people have gotten to the point where they think, well, God is just merciful. No, God is a God of justice. And if you are not willing to admit this, if you are not willing to confess this, then the fact of the matter is, is you stand firmly in God's justice. And you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It is not until we are willing to actually say with our mouth, to confess with our mouth, that what I have done is wrong, and that this isn't what God is like. It's not until we agree with the truth that is in God's word. And as soon as we are willing to turn away from that, even though we may struggle with it, continue to struggle with it in the future, it is not until we turn away from that and we confess with our mouths that God's mercy comes into effect. It's at that moment that we get to move from God's justice to his mercy. But it's not until that moment. It's just such an incredible thing to find ourselves in that last part of the sentence. That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who are Christ's have been willing to say, the things that I have done wrong are behind me. And where I am going is, is ahead of me. And I'm willing to take one more little step. Just one more little step. I'm willing to align my life at least and admitting to what God says is good is good and to what God says is evil is evil. If we're willing to do that, then we become a part of the kingdom of heaven. It says, against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And of course, then it continues on and talking about bearing one another's burdens. I... As I did this, as I I looked at this, one of the things that really stuck out to me was Matthew, chapter 5. And this is the Sermon on the Mount, and I understand that in the men's Sunday school class, they actually discussed this, and I don't know if anyone else did either. But one of the things I found was this simple explanation of what these, what the powerful steps that we can take are that make us more like God to become a more of an imitator of God. I'd like to start Matthew chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a simple explanation of what God loves in us. You would think that he could have all kinds of other things. Perhaps in here, you would think he would say, well, well great are those that conquer much. Great are those that, that have achieved much. Great are those that have built great steel empires. Or done incredible amount of development. Or developed the next supercomputer. No, he doesn't say any of that stuff. Is that stuff of no value? No, there's value in that. Because in the midst of that, there's great opportunity for good. Great opportunity for evil as well. But if, if we create it in a way that desires the good, then that is, those things are good. I think in the midst of this, I've realized that it, in some ways, these things are simple. Recently, I was reading a, an article about some of the rules of triage. And I find it interesting when people try to boil things down to their very basic necessity. And so, so there's basically, there's three basic rules of triage. They each have a couple different things in them. But the first rule of triage is to assess to the people that, are, that are, have a problem. And the assessment should be, goes like this. Are they able to walk? Are they breathing? Or are they responsive to questions? And so you can imagine if you ask these questions, are they able to walk? Well, if they're able to walk, you probably could move on to the next person. Are they able to are they responsive to questions? Well, if they can respond to questions, then they are at least a little bit there. They're probably able to do a few things themselves. Are they breathing? If they're not breathing, and this, this was one that stunned me, and I realized probably this situation. It says, if they are not breathing, then you move on and don't worry about them. And I thought, wow, like, okay, so that, this is a lot worse triage than I expected. There must be a lot of people here or something. But then they say things like, and you, you assess them, and then you ask the questions, are, are they able to walk and are they able to breathe? Well, then that's, that's somebody that is probably you can, you can deal with later. They, they can take care of themselves for right now. But if they're not able to walk and they're not responsive to questions, then you really should pay attention because that's somebody that is very important to know what's going on. Another thing they say is that you should check their airways, their breathing, and their circulation. So somebody bleeding really badly. That's something that needs to be taken care of. It's a problem. It needs to be dealt with immediately. And then, of course, you per periodically reassess everyone to see if anyone has changed classifications. So if you find out somebody that could walk, no longer can walk, then you better reassess them. You better go back to them and check them out. I, I found it interesting because in the midst of this, at the very end, it says, oh, and by the way, there's one case here that these rules do not apply to, and that is a lightning strike. They say that you do the exact opposite in a lightning strike, is that the first people you look to are those that are not breathing. Because in lightning strikes, oftentimes it's a stoppage of the heart, and if you give them even a brief bit of CPR and chest compressions, they, their heart will start back up. And so the very first thing you want to do is you want to assess the ones that aren't breathing and try, try to help them right then in that moment because there's a very good chance you have a chance you can get them to come back around. So I, I, as I thought about this idea of rules for triage, it then it raised the question within me, okay, so what about rules for the way that we treat people? What about rules for life? Is there simple things in life that we can apply? Is there a, a way that we can say, well, this is what it is like to be like God, and this is what it is like to be walking away from God? 
And it goes back to those very simple things, the very first commandment and the second commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you like to be alone? And I, th I think most of us can say very simply, no, I don't want to be alone. Well, if somebody's in this church that's alone, shouldn't we be walking to them and talking with them? Isn't this a way of being more like Christ? I think about Christ's interaction with individuals and with, with children and his desire to say, hey, bring the little children unto me. Those that cried out for Christ, he went to them. He talked with them. He spoke with them. Don't, shouldn't we do the same? Are we willing to look at other people in a way that, that Christ looked at them? This is a journey for me because in the midst of this, I realize how much I have to learn and how, how little I know, I guess. But my desire in the midst of this is to become more an imitator of God, to become more like God. And to take seriously the passage here in Matthew, we call the Sermon on the Mount, and recognize that this is for today. This is a literal interpretation of what we are to do and the way we are to act. There are many churches that don't believe that. But can we apply that in our lives? Can we become someone who desires to be an imitator of Christ? Let's pray. Lord, this morning... My heart is heavy and I recognize that, that you have created within me a desire to be more like you. And I believe that you have placed into each one of our hearts a desire to be like you, to grow. And Lord, in the midst of this, I recognize that there are just often just very small steps. And I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to be able to take the small steps that we know to take. To be able to do the things that will allow us to share your love. And to also to be an example of you, I pray that you allow us to follow in your footsteps in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, in the midst of pain, in the midst of scars, in the midst of leaving behind us the things that have created pain within us. And to pursue a relationship with you. I thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.